0: Hi, I'm Kathy Thomas with the City of Las Vegas. Hi, my name is Heather. I'm the CEO for the Las Vegas Rescue Mission. And this this is Compassionate compassionate Las Las Vegas, Vegas the podcast. podcast.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Amy. I'm with Anytown Youth Council. And today we're talking about anti-homelessness and, for me, uh, youth homelessness and and how people are unhoused and how that's unacceptable. I would just like to, I guess, open this podcast with asking our first question, um, which is why does homelessness generate so much debate and confusion?
2: Yeah, that is the question I often ask when I'm in meetings where the debates and the confusion occur. Just like there are many causes of homelessness, there will be multiple solutions to ending homelessness. And the reason there is confusion and even debate is that different groups and different individuals want to approach addressing homelessness differently. Some in this conversation attribute homelessness to the actual person experiencing that homelessness. And so they want that person to figure it out, get it together, raise themselves by the bootstraps, so to speak. And there are others who understand that there are different systems at play but they don't agree on which elements of those systems are the best place for us to interact to make a change. And so you have this continuum of folks who participate in the conversations, I think genuinely want to see homelessness ended, but can't agree on the causes, and therefore, don't agree on the solutions.
3: Thank you for that, Kathy. I think you, as always, Hit the nail on the head. I'd like to invite Heather into the conversation on that same question.
0: Kathy is always hitting it right on the head, you know. Um, so there, uh, there are so many factors in the solution, and there and maybe there shouldn't be. However, there are so many demographics within the homeless um, population in the encampments. There's like five demographics within that. And and how someone has become homeless, you know, and the circumstances behind that, and I feel that there's a whole lot of effort being put into the triage factor of it all. Um, what I do, you know, how how we do that, but it's the uh, but it's the after that I think is the key piece um, that I see the most. So I, I'm a believer that that we shouldn't be pushing people out to the ends of any environment to any city in any state anywhere, but bring them into the neighborhoods where appropriate So that they have dignity and, you know, and they can afford to be in that area where there's trees and parks and all the things that normal families do or individuals, but that might not be that way for every single person that's experienced homelessness that might not work for them. So I think long-term case management is a, is a key factor, you know, to stay with people for quite a long time as things go really well. And if something goes wrong, then we're right there to help them navigate that, that issue and get to the other side of it so that that eight ball doesn't get so big that it's no longer feasible to lift. Um, there's a lot of collaboration everywhere. There's a lot of conversation everywhere. I'm more of a, um, an action person. Um, and I think, you know, I, I can't speak for Kathy, but I, I sort of maybe, there's just been, we, we're in meetings all the time, having a conversation all the time. And I, and I think, you know, at this point, it's just pick up and do something different. And it might not be popular, you know, or whatever the case is. But I think moving the needle forward, you know, is is key in this thing. But yes, you're right; it causes tremendous debate.
1: So, Heather, I noticed when you were talking about um, bringing homeless uh, people into better uh, like neighborhoods, and you said where appropriate. Um, can you just like elaborate on that? Sorry, just for quick clarification no
0: that's a perfect that's a wonderful question um i'm in long-term recovery so for me when i was first sober me being um you know going back into politics or whatever my life was then was not appropriate because i did not have the skill set or wherewithal at that point to to navigate it appropriately i had some more work to do so we look at um all the demographics of homelessness So if we're looking at a family, per se, that's had, they've had jobs, they've actually maintained a home and some really horrible things happened, Um, but they're capable of kind of stepping back into that world with some supportive care. That might not be the case for somebody who's coming from the tunnels, you know, that is now experiencing many different things and putting them into an environment that they're not ready for, it can cause, you know, them to have recidivism factors, and it can be very overwhelming. So, depending on the demographic, the circumstances, and I think that that's the key piece that I see the most is really looking at every person without a broad brush label and assuming all these things, but really getting into them and saying, you know, what were your dreams? That's that's kind of what we're doing here now. When was the last time you dreamt? When was the last time you thought, you want, know I want to be the best? manager at 7-Eleven or I want to be a banker or an astronaut, you know, whatever, whatever that dream is, we're trying to narrow in on that and throw some oxygen at it so that they have the capability of hope again and dream and, and, and then we kind of work with that. So it's going to be really individualized as to how, as to what environment they're going to go in in the beginning, because the last thing we want to do is set somebody up that is so overwhelming for them that, that they can't make it happen. So I think it's I think we need to look at this in an individual factor as well.
1: That's beautifully said. Thank you so much for that. Um and so Kathy, um I know we were I I guess all, all of us are talking about possible or plausible solutions to homelessness and that there's so many different ways of going about solving this problem. And so I guess what I'm asking is is there any way like what solution would you think would be feasible for Um, fixing the issue of homelessness. Like, is there something tangible? Um, Like for me, at least I think education is one of the bigger things that we need to focus on to, um, you know, get rid of homelessness.
2: I, I do think there are multiple things that are very tangible. And I want to echo what Heather said. You meet the individual where they are and ask them what the solution is for them and their family. In my work, we have a a working model. Hired, housed, and healthy. And that's based on some focus groups we did with adults experiencing homelessness. They said to us, if you help me get a job, I can figure the rest out by myself. So even though I knew they had some substance use issues, some mental health issues and a number of other issues, I can't decide for them that the thing we're going to start addressing is your mental health history. Because that's not what they said to me. What they said was, fully 50% said, if you help me get a job, I can figure the rest out myself. And so we started working with this change theory, if you will that a asset base, right? We're gonna work with whatever you got going for you. That's what we're going to start your plan from that point. And we actually have some evidence in our own programs that show that when we get someone a job at the same time that we place them in housing, they are more likely to maintain both the job and the housing. And then they start working on their health issues. They eat better, so they they are addressing diabetes. They're more committed to working with their mental health professional. They are attending their 12-step meetings. All the health issues that may have been the cause of their homelessness, by the way, they're now addressing them because they got a job and they got housing. And so I think the tangible thing we give people is the thing that they request. In the case of the adults, that the city is serving, what they said was, help me get a job. And so in a lot of our programs, the individuals that we hire are guests of the courtyard. We hire people experiencing homelessness while they're still homeless. We don't require them to clean up. We don't require them to be housed. We only require that they show up on time and do the work they're assigned And from there, all the other things begin to fall in place. So those are the tangible things that we think are important. By the way, that doesn't mean that the city doesn't subscribe to the uh, theory of housing first, we do. I'm not a purist though. So if the thing that I get you first isn't a place to live, if the thing that I get you first is the thing that you as a person experiencing homelessness requested then that's where I will begin my journey with that person. I want to partner with that person. And it's their journey, by the way. My job is to support that to the extent that uh, I can or the programs we operate can. But the tangible thing you give somebody is
1: actually the thing that they ask for. Thank you. Um, And so I want to pose pose the, the same question for Heather, like, what is something? What is a possible like solution, or even something s- stepping forward that we can do for um, people experiencing homelessness?
0: Well, you know, there's just there's not a one, there's not a one specific factor, um, to that. You know, um, there's it's it's, it's, it's there's it's such a dichotomy of of things. So. Um, so what, um, and I echo what Kathy says, you know, and, and, and honestly, watching what goes on at the courtyard, and, um, and I'm very well integrated with that. When you give people dignity, and you give them pride, you give them hope. And everybody, no matter what their circumstances are, most individuals, when you have action in your feet, you and you start doing dignified things, dignity and pride come back to you and so what she's saying you know with with giving them a job no matter what the situation is that immediately right there takes them out of the the trauma and the stress or even the willful not wanting to do something you know you want to do this let's work for it together and that brings pride and that and that brings motivation so as i look at um to go back to the first question on because i've been thinking about that and, and i am not necessarily um i I speak my mind on these on these factors so but the encampment issue again there's so many different demographics in that right so there are people in this community out there on the street corners there is a handful of people that don't want help they're service resistant this is the world that they want to be in it doesn't really fit into whatever society says right and so that causes a lot of dissonance with people get them off my property thing right the other side of that coin is that person is somebody somebody it's somebody's child right um and you know in my house with all my adult kids there was never a you know let's get up get moving i will not push pull or drag you but you will get up and, and you will move into that and so we have to take that piece into the solution as well you you know you, you want these things what are you willing to do to do that because here's what we're willing to do for you with our uh, recovery program very much like the courtyard does uh, we put the men coming in on security right away which seemingly might be a bit dangerous or you know maybe not so safe but what it does for the men specifically is it gives them pride and it gives them something to sort of command in that area and and that in turn gets them moving forward So again, you know, I'll stand by the fact that there are so many different demographics in the homeless world and it's not okay to paint, you know, to put a broad brush to all them in any way. And all the different people in there, like the people at the courtyard, when they get to go to work right away, it it, it gives them that sense of purpose. And now you have something to walk with them home to or pull them back, you know? in, in the recovery world, um, you know, boy, if I had a quarter for every woman that said, I don't like women. And I'm like, well, you don't like women because you can't manipulate them. And the men, I just need a job and I'll be fine. And and that's just not the case either, right? Because they're really not employable. So we kind of have to bring these things back down and meet them where they're at to get them where they need to be as long as they're willing to take the walk with us.
1: Right, right. And that's beautifully said again. Um, so with like possible well, not, not solutions but keeping it as accessible for people experiencing homelessness i understand like a lot of things that are going on such as a uh, hostile uh, architecture like anti-homeless architecture is starting to we're starting to see it a lot more um and so the definition is the design of buildings or public spaces in a way which discourages people from touching, climbing, or sitting on them, with the intention of avoiding damage or use for a different purpose. And so I don't, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but there's um, anti-homelessness architecture. You'll see, like, for example, at bus stops there's benches, um, and there will be like bars to like separate each seat. But in reality, the purpose of that is to prevent people who are experiencing homelessness to sleep on those benches. Sometimes you'll see even spikes. Um, so what what are your perspectives like, and thoughts on that? So,
2: and honestly, this is probably the second time in maybe two months that I've even heard the concept of anti-homeless architecture. Because one of the conversations I have with our planners and with parks and recs department staff as they're designing parks is that they, that anything you design that attracts people, attracts people. And it doesn't matter if their status uh, or their current housing status is that they are unhoused, um, it will attract people. And this notion that, for me at least, this notion that um, a particular thing that's designed for people will repulse certain people. Um, My observation is that, um, because there are a lot of um, bus benches that have those humps, those arms, whatever, to separate people. And I see homeless folks sleeping on them all the time. Like it, it, it isn't, if that's the intention of those, it's not effective because the human body needs to sleep. And if that's the place you are when you have to stop and sleep, you will sleep on that. I've seen um, rock, you know, xeriscape uh, that people think will discourage unhoused people from setting up an encampment on rocks no they set up encampments on rocks i'm much more interested in the reality than the theory of the thing and i think um, heather might have touched on this a, a little bit is you know you deal with people in their current reality and so it is the architecture anti-homeless Because if it's built to attract people, homeless individuals are people too, they will be in that space, they will use that space just like any other person. It's the policies that determine who gets to be in the space, my opinion. Now, of course, there are, um, like a lot of this architecture is actually meant to discourage skateboarders, right? Um, it's actually uh, meant to change the use in a different way. And so, uh, and it doesn't, right? It just creates a better challenge, I think, if you design things certain, certain ways. So um, I guess, you know, in, in my opinion, the real question to me is more about the policies behind the design of public space. And if a public space is designed for people to congregate, then all people get to congregate there. If a public space is designed for people to move through it, then people get to move through it. If it's designed for concerts, then there should be concerts, COVID notwithstanding. So that means if benches are for sitting, people get to sit there. If sidewalks are for walking, people get to walk there. Whatever that public space in particular was designed or created to do, then people get to do it in that space. The challenge becomes when things happen in spaces that it wasn't designed to accommodate. So the the natural outgrowth of this question would be, but hey, you've got the city, you've got this camping ordinance. Absolutely, because sidewalks are meant for walking, not camping. And so people experiencing homelessness should be able to use the public space like any other person uses the public space but if the public space gets used in a way that impedes other people using that public space, now we have to have a conversation about what can we do about that? Or what should we do about that? And so whether people agree or not with policies um, means that the, the conversation A needs to happen at a policy level, but B just on an operational level We should be advocating for homeless people to get housed, not for homeless people to be able to sleep on a sidewalk. Like I never understand the dialogue that crops up around insisting that people get to sleep on a sidewalk. We should be insisting that people get to sleep in a place meant for human habitation. And so a lot of our um, advocacy energy gets used up advocating for something that we wouldn't want for ourselves. We, we don't wanna have to sleep on the concrete, we wanna sleep in a home. And so the conversation about um, anti-homeless ap- architecture, c- can we have a policy conversation about <laughs> getting people housed rather than whether or not there's a hump on the bench? Because the bench is for sitting
3: yeah, Kathy, your perspective on that, I, I really appreciate how you frame it and keep us big picture. And I was viewing some uh, on, on the web just in preparation for this today r- around the North Las Vegas encampment and juxtaposed were the wooden structures that were built and like the tent city type thing where you know trash bags were used as coverings. And is there a place in this bigger conversation for incremental improvement? And Heather, since you work most closely with the individuals experiencing homelessness, maybe you could chime in first.
0: Thank you. Well, I mean, what Kathy said, is a, it's a mic drop. <laughs> it's like that's exactly where I'm at. Um, you know, so, um, so I'll throw a little more controversy out there as well. Um, so let's let's take an encampment, the one that was over here at Owens, that, like, that peninsula that seemingly had no owner there for a minute or whatever that was, <laughs> um, right? So I go by there to check in and it's covered in, in fecal matter and garbage, right? So what happens there? There's bathrooms there, there was sanitation put in, everything was there. Any encampment area that I am a part of, and I, you know, I do, you know, um, as well as Kathy will sit with anybody anywhere is constantly beyond not well kept in any direction and zero want to do it. Right. So um, I was over there around Smith's the other day. Right. And then I had to run up to Summerlin for a meeting. And what I see is arrogance in an affluent area, as well as arrogance in a low income area. It's almost the same. And the fact that I'll park where I want, I'll do what I want, I'll throw this where I want, and that's just the way it is, right? So we go back down to what what human conditions and manners are. And in these encampment areas, just as much as you, I do not wanna have a label put on me, know me first before you label me, that's how I'm gonna look at every individual. We have children here. Kathy's, you know, camp down there, it's constantly busy and it's massive, right? There's children, even if they're not staying there and walking around at times. So now we have people exposing themselves. We have people defecating on the sidewalk. It's a CDC issue. It's a complete hazmat problem. So there's a lot of factors to this. The service resistant, and, you know, and this is where society the societal factors come into play, right? If, If a child family generational wealth was in any way raised to live off the government. And that was just the impetus put behind it. Then now we have to kind of unwind something that's been a learned behavior for for a very long time. The other side of that is the benefit issues. So the women that I worked with in human trafficking, that's a hard, hard mind to turn. It just is a rough one. But they get that job at the Dollar Tree, right? They're making beyond or below minimum wage, and but they are doing the next right thing. They're not taking the fast, easy way out. Even if it's damaging, they're still gonna do that. They start making money they get a 10 cent raise and now their benefits are slashed. And so basically what we're telling them is, you know, if you wanna excel in your life, you're not gonna be able to feed your kid halfway through the month, you know, or maybe your, your Medicaid changes and stuff. So there are some fractures in that. There's been a lot of help in that in the last few years, for sure, it's getting looked at, but there's a lot of those things. I can't make anybody do anything they don't want to do. Nor do I have a desire to do that. So when we have the service-resistant population, right? Um, the people there are people that are on the benches and people on the sidewalks and stuff. All that time, though, I probably have 15 beds open, and we patrol the area. We talk to people. I keep stats on, you know, every, you know, what was the engagement factor? Where are they today? And the goal is to is to befriend and, and give them trust enough so that maybe they'll want to do it. And those are the people that will have trauma associated with help. You know, the system failed them somewhere along the line and there's zero trust in any part of it. So there's that piece. you have the piece too of the willfulness. It's a public street, I'll do what I want. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't get to do what I want. You know, I I would be arrested by now. Um, and, And then they use that. There's a difference between being a victim and being victimized. They're two very distinct terms. And if we roll with the victim aspect of life, well, hi, my name is Heather, here's all these horrible things that happened to me. I'm gonna gonna both say, it's nice to meet you. This we can deal with later, where are we today? And so there's a victimization as well as running a victim label. But again, that's not every single person on the street. But those are the different demographics we're dealing with. Um, I I have only heard um, of the anti-homeless architecture, I think once last week, somewhere along the line, you know? um, And I don't know that I can give you an opinion on that necessarily. But what I can say is, um, and echo what Kathy said, the, the rules and the laws in life are what they are. You know, pick up your garbage, throw it away, take care of your space. If you don't know how to, we'll help you figure that out. Engage the people that are service resistant because of trauma and get to know them. Don't try to force anybody to do anything, but get to know them, create a trust, whether it's here or any of the other amazing shelters that we have. But then there's that group of people that 100% wants things to come to them easily. And that's that. And so they're woven in between all the families that get lost and all the controversy. And it's, and it's hard, but we sit, we try, we figure it out. We all collaborate. Um, but you know, at the same point, I have kids here and intact families here. So if I have somebody defecating on the corner, that's not okay. It's not okay for this family. It's not okay for those children. We're trying to get them away from that stuff.
2: Yeah. I think, um, will your question about, are there some interim things that can happen? And I believe the answer to that is always yes. There is not a single magic silver bullet that will fix everything. And there are some interim things that we can do. There is um, some kind of heuristics that people use in, in you know, shortcut things that people use when they're having this legal conversation. They say, um, sure you have free speech, but you cannot yell fire in a crowded theater, right? You've heard that before. Um, they say, sure, you have liberty, but your liberty to swing your arms ends at the tip of my nose, right? What those two kinds of ideas are suggesting that freedom and liberty come with responsibility and constraints, and so I really see some of the interim measures that some so-called advocates put forth as swinging their arms and hitting the tip of somebody else's nose. When we have encampments set up adjacent to communities um, without engaging that community on how to support our unhoused neighbors then we, we're we swinging our arms and touching the tips of someone else's nose. This isn't about NIMBYism. So often people get accused uh, back to those labels. I think Heather was saying, don't label me until you know me. And so if a neighborhood says, hey, we don't want that. Everyone says you're bad for not wanting this. That's NIMBYism. But what they don't want is some of what um, Heather was describing when in one case, there were clothes on a clothesline, and people went and took the clothes. They didn't ask, "Hey, I need I need some clean clothes. Have you got some?" They just took them off the clothesline, and the senior citizens who lived in the home were petrified. But legally, they were they were robbed. Is that okay? I always feel like we're pitting one group of low income individuals against another group of low-income individuals and not trying to find a place where both of those communities get what they need. And the places where the encampments spring up, often in those neighborhoods, folks say, you wouldn't let this happen in Summerlin, you wouldn't let this happen in more affluent neighborhoods. And um, government, has to respond to all of its constituents. So the interim measures, like the courtyard, for example, where um, it's not intended to be permanent by any means. It's intended to be a place where you can be safe, you can come with your pets, you can bring all of your personal belongings, we'll help you store them, you can wash and get cleaned up, you can have an address of record to receive your mail or apply for jobs. You can get connected with your family members. You can do all those things. It's really difficult to do when you're sleeping rough on the street. And if you choose to stay overnight, you'll be safe. Nobody's going to rob you or attack you. And uh, we shouldn't underestimate that. Like Two years ago, there was literally a man beating homeless people in their sleeping bags, beating them to death with a lead pipe. Thankfully, he got arrested. But people will victimize the homeless and do it in their sleep. You can come to this, what I consider an interim measure and sleep safely. access basic services and figure out your next step. It's not the end all and be all. We never said that the courtyard was going to end homelessness. We said it's a navigation center to help you connect to services, get on a different path. That's one kind of interim step. Another kind of interim step that we would love to see happen is that we do have um, publicly owned empty buildings that we could repurpose for housing. I don't know if you've ever been out to the Ross and Neal campus on Charleston. Um, It's a state owned campus and they've got a mental health hospital out there but they've also got cottages out there. They've got a two or three story office building that's two thirds empty. They've got a two story building where at one point they were serving youth with uh, mental health issues. It's half empty, publicly owned building, state owns it. There's probably another acre of land that we could actually build tiny homes that have heat and plumbing in them and not those shacks that they were passing off as housing where we could let people actually stay with dignity because they could store their belongings, wash, read a book, really be protected from the the elements because tents and shacks don't do that because they're not insulated. So if it's hot, you're hot in your tent. or you're cold in your tent if it's whatever the weather is you're not protected from the weather in those shanty towns you are still dealing with the elements and you're also dealing with all the other um challenges because in those encampments there are predators there are people who want to sell you drugs people who will um uh, force you to engage in sex for money. So all those things that um, happen to people who are poor and desperate happen in ho- homeless encampments. And so um, to me, that those were not interim steps. There are interim steps. Some we've taken. Um, I believe the shelters like Rescue Mission and Salvation Army and Catholic Charities are interim steps. Um, that's not where it ends but that's a place for it to begin and so if um, that's a right interim step we should offer that to people and, and we want that to be part of the intervention as we move along the continuum yes there are lots more that we could do and I really think we should be looking at taking these empty buildings that are publicly owned right not being used for anything and convert those into housing that again, another step. So you sort of move wherever you need to move, whatever's um, in, in your best interest as decided by you, right? The person experiencing homelessness can fully decide, Hey, I don't want to come to the courtyard or I don't want to go the, to the rescue mission. And that's okay. They should be able to decide what service they use We just need more of those services so they have better choices because it's not a choice to um, poop on the corner, as as Heather was indicating.
3: You've given us a a lot. And Heather, you you gave us a lot as well. And I want to make space for Amy just to share any any thoughts that have come because of this. But one thing really stood out to me that I hope we have in our last few minutes a chance to address, which is solutions have been identified. You've given us a very clear path to eradicating homelessness. You really have done that. But my question is, why aren't we doing it?
1: My, my comments are actually aligned with uh, what Will is trying to get it across here. Um, I guess from the perspective of someone who is of the youth advocacy, advocacy groups. Um, We just like to see people being held accountable for not um, doing what they claim, I guess. And so I noticed, uh, Heather, you were talking about how, you know, people might not want help because of trauma, because the the system has or may have failed them in the past. And so that's what I'm asking. um, At what point can we say, you need to do what you need to do? And so with that in mind, I would like to kind of move that into the, like when COVID started, um, I there was a big thing going on with Las, the Las Vegas homeless population where they would put like dividing lines or like in a parking lot for homeless to stay. And so I would kind of like to touch on that as to like, as Kathy was saying, we should we should provide them with opportunities and provide them with housing. Um, <coughs> uh, where in the where in the solution where in the solution of giving homeless people the opportunity of having housing does the parking lot kind of um, lead into? I understand that it was also part of the COVID. Uh, spacing as well
2: so I'll respond to that because that was literally my department doing that we had one of our traditional shelter partners who had a an individual that popped positive for COVID-19 and because there really wasn't any plan in place for what to do with congregate shelters when that happened the decision that that particular provider made at the time was to close the entire shelter, which meant 500 adult males had no place to be at night. None of our other traditional partners had the capacity to absorb 500 adult males. And where where would the where were those men going to go?
3: Heather, could you have absorbed five hundred adult males at your facility?
0: No, so, and Amy, I completely utterly respect what you're saying. Um, i'm a commissioner for the metal women's commission too and um i and and i've been watching kathy for a long time and we might not always agree and i think that that's but i have a mad respect for her and um and we don't disagree and that's the way it works right that's how we problem solve ultimately is through those things and and i i will defend that a little bit in this case so this is an unwritten crisis right Polio, long-term crisis, flu, and shingala, everything, right? Ebola. So this is an unwritten crisis. We are writing it every day that we're in it. And so as a commissioner, um, you know, I put my bulletproof vest on a lot when I speak, you know, because and that's just, you know, the deal, you know, um, everybody has an opinion about a lot of things and they have every right to have them. But when you're in the thick of it, like in the thick of it, and we did not know what covid was at that time it was scary and unknown we packed the house we pulled in almost 300 people here and we created a commune right and then we had to you know then of course we had the covid orders coming through on what you can't can't do with bedding, right and we can't have people in and out upside down because we don't know what we're dealing with and 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 that puts all these people that are on the streets who are supposed to be um in home quarantine like everybody else, except essential workers, where does that put them? So as, as unpalatable as that might have been, it certainly in no way was ever a demeaning factor at all. It was a I I believe it was a response to immediate crisis need right now. And that's kind of the thing. Um, and Amy, I'm excited for you and your future. I really am because moving forward with actionable, things and completely well stated questions puts me and um in a position that i can answer you with my own um outspoken ways and i'm really tempered here right now (laughs) but you know I, i i do have to say that um in that crisis when that happened i mean we all down here catholic charities salvation army shade tree the city we all immediately got on the phone and we talked at least a couple times a week as a group, who has what, what do you need? How do we make this happen? Who's got an outbreak? And we just threaded together. And and, and I think in the offset of all this thing that that was one of the best things, one of the best things that could have happened. That I said, you know, I don't make the best decisions all the time either, right? I mean, I got a lot of souls and a lot of money under my name. And I don't take that lightly for one single second, but it makes it hard To make really immediate crisis-driven decisions that might not be palatable to the outside world but what i can tell you is those individuals were safe that day it gave them space as to figure out who's testing where are we testing right because it was going to be rapid and then it was like oh can't have that you have to have pcr okay what happens with that you know there were so many things that had to come into play um do i think that we as a as a nation and all this stuff have done all this completely fabulous well, no, but is it supposed I mean, is there a fabulous way to respond to all that? In ten years, there will be because we will know a lot more about Covid. We'll know a lot more about what we're doing. Um, to that point, here, we actually had a suicide on Monday. Mm-hmm. And it was devastating and certainly not my first, but for a lot of my people, it was their first, right? And you know, it, it's just that it's just everything hit kind of hard this week with that. So I decided that COVID's no longer going to drive our motorcycle, but it's going to sit in a sidecar and we're going to get it cute goggles and we're going to embrace it. And we are going to come alive again, in a very safe, healthy way. Um, and as this is our new little partner in life, We have to embrace it. Acceptance does not require that we like it. It requires that we accept it for what it is now so that we can be in the solution. And I believe wholeheartedly that's where the city was at with this thing.
3: Thank you so much for that. And I just, and Kathy, I appreciate you allowing me to interject because what I just wanted to highlight is that this, from the outside world, from people that are just looking, it may appear one way, but we have now the city of Las Vegas saying and an active partner, a community service provider, saying this is what happened, why it happened, and no, it wasn't perfect, but it's what we had to do in the moment. So thank you both for for bringing that to light. Amy, back to you.
1: Yeah, I would just like to add on to what you're saying, Will, like, I think that although it hadn't been um, like the most perfect solution um, or, it just had been the, mo- the, the quickest way to get um, something done. Like, I would just like to point out like, although like s- we all may not have the same, um, not like mindset, but although we do have our opposing views sometimes, we aren't too far apart. And that the unity between these different um, perspe- perspectives gives a lot of insight as to what we could achieve, I guess.
2: It is so well said, Amy. I have often said that we don't have disagreement on the big ideas, right? We believe that humans deserve housing. I think we all agree on that. We believe that as a community, we have the ability to feed the hungry. We all believe that. I do believe we share a commitment to human dignity. I really really believe that. And so what I ask people to do is just, you know, write your agenda down. Like you might have 10 things on your agenda and I'll have 10 things on my agenda. But if we can find the two or three things that we agree upon, then we'll work on those two or three things together. Um, Tiny homes was one of those things Yep, Big fan of it. I'm looking for land right down the city where we can build it. Um, are we anti-poverty? Absolutely. We believe in living wage. And so we, we want to support people fighting for that policy change. And in fact, we walk our talk. So when we hire homeless people at the courtyard, we pay them $15 an hour right now, pay them $15 an hour because we believe in a living wage. And as they progress, uh, they can move quickly from $15 an hour to $18 an hour. Because two years ago, when we started the courtyard, you needed to make 18 bucks an hour to afford a two bedroom apartment. And now, now because rent's going up is 20 bucks, we have to adjust our pay scales to reflect that. We believe in those things. So I think, Amy, you hit it right on the head that we may have a different perspective based on where we stand, right? Because I'm standing over here on this side of the issue as a government employee and I have constituents that include unhoused communities and the business community and youth serving communities and elderly serving communities and right, the rich, the poor, the well-educated, the uneducated, all of those are constituents of the city, which means, and in my department community services, I have to serve the entire community. And often members of the community will have conflicting and competing priorities. And I still have to serve all members of the community. For many of our community partners, their focus is on a part of that community. For many of our advocacy groups, their focus is on maybe even a more defined part of that community. And it doesn't change the fact that government has to serve all of its constituents. So sometimes we look like we are having conflict when we're not. We're not in disagreement, but as government, I have to serve every constituent of the city. And so it takes us longer. There was a question you posed Will, why aren't we doing the things we know will work? Part of the reason it takes a long time to get there when government's involved. Hi, my name is Kathy, I'm a bureaucrat, right? I have to own that. (laughs) Takes a long time to move the levers of government to untie the purse strings so that financial resources flow, to facilitate the conversation. So elected officials at the state, city, county level agree. And oh yeah, let's throw in the public entities like the railroad, the uh, power company, right? Specifically when we're talking about encampments because a lot of those encampments spring up in this never never land that isn't the city or the county, it's the railroads, or it's the power companies right of way. And they've got their own boards and commissions. And so sometimes we are not doing what we all know needs to be done is because these institutions are big and calcified and it takes a long time for them to move. I can assure you there's movement happening But it won't happen as quickly, I think, as any of us want it to happen, and certainly as quickly as people living in poverty need it to happen. So when we know what to do, the reason we don't always seem like we're doing it is because there are competing interests, and there are large institutions who move slowly, even when they think they're moving, because the city thinks it's moving lickety-split, not moving lickety split. And then this is why I said earlier, could we use our advocacy energy on those kinds of things? Because when we hold people accountable, let's hold them accountable for the transformative things, not the
1: transactional things. Um, I would just like to like give Heather like a last few words before we close it up because I know we haven't heard from Heather uh, yet on this real quick. Boy,
0: Amy, I'll tell you what, you are a very actionable young lady. Politics is a, is a chessboard, my girl, it's a chessboard. Some of us have some skill sets that are very good at that. I do. It doesn't always come out well, but but it's very calculated. It is what it is, right? I mean, so, and I'm a good old boy. I was born in Elko and raised in Carson City. So, you know, I'm from here, um, for real. <laughs> so, I mean, like, really from here. So, that, I love your word calcification. Because <laughs> that's exactly what it feels like. But so here's the thing. You do it with respect. I don't move a chessboard around just just because, right? My title only does one thing for me. I need to drop it when I need to move something, and so and that works. Other than that, I'm Heather, an alcoholic and a mother, right? Who's got a chance of a second life? But I've been put in this path to play to play this board a little bit. So I do it wisely and I do it carefully. But the one thing I think that I see the most of is is the fight when people are sitting back and saying, clearly there's a problem, which we know, how come no one's doing anything, right? And then there's an immediate defensive reaction. And now they're on city hall screaming, but sometimes I don't know that they know what they're fighting for anymore. Sometimes I don't know if they're fighting to fight or if they really wanna drive something, because if you really wanna drive something, then you gotta lean into it. You gotta lean into it and you gotta be part of the solution in the conversation. Because the first thing that's going to happen when people feel like they're being attacked or any entity, they're going to put that wall up because there's so much behind that that people don't know. And so I think in a bureaucratic level, and I don't know if this will ever happen, right, but um, to kind of clean up the rhetoric a little bit, bullet pointed on one sheet, (laughs) this is what we're doing, this is what this looks like, and we don't know the answer. You know and and that um, but but we're working toward that solution so you know moving forward in advocacy um I, I mean when uh the state of the city um i was approached when i went up there uh, with some people uh, to wear a t-shirt right and i get it and these people i know well and i respect them but i don't fall into that that particular thing and i know and i will never politicize myself in that way um necessarily um because I know what's going on behind the scenes, and also to what end, you know, to what end. So you can have a voice, use it wisely, be very direct in what you're saying. You know, my staff, anybody will come to me, my children, and they're like, blah, blah, and I'm like, I don't want to know about that. I want to know this, this, and this, and then this we can fold in later. And so, you know, I think going forward in advocacy is, is going forward with respect and advocacy. Again, acceptance doesn't require that we like it, but it requires that we accept it so that we can all be part of the solution going forward. And if we want people to listen to us, then we have to be kind and understanding in how we're stating it. And know this, I'm a band-aid ripper. I have zero filter. I'm very well aware of who I am. And, And I tell people, like when I got the call this morning, I don't know that you want me on there. Because I don't know that I cannot say what I really feel to say, so we have to be careful in what we do. But you have to have conviction in it and not be willing to run away if it doesn't go your way. It's a big problem. It's not. This is a big ball of yarn that's never going to be unwound completely. But what I can say is, here in the city, and certainly with all the nonprofits, everybody's really moving forward. You know, and I invite people in here all the time. COVID's like been a little bit of a challenge with that, but come in. You want to. You want You want to do something. Come in. Come in and see how it's done. It's very humbling. And it reminds you that you're human. And it reminds you
1: that these are God's children too, right? Including the government. Well, that was beautifully said. And thank you both for coming on here and having this conversation and having this open dialogue. Um, I would like to thank Will for having me here. Um, This was a great um, platform for me to be on since I'm like... I'm a younger person, uh, 18 years old, but thank you so much for this opportunity to just have this conversation and uh, you know, bridge these connections.
3: Beautiful. And Amy, thank you for navigating this so beautifully, so compassionately. Heather, Kathy, you both are true gems for our city. Thank you for your service, for the work that you have dedicated your lives to. I know it's not easy, and I think our audience is hearing how complex this really, really is. And so hopefully this moves the ball forward and gains positive energy towards the solutions that we've talked about. And uh, just you know, a, a change for our city, more compassionate Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. So I wanna thank the audience for listening and engaging in this conversation as well. As always, remember you are not just a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop, and what you do does matter. We'll see you next time. Coming up on Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. What we're saying is, well, here's a concept. Here are some practices. Try it out. How's it working out for you? Is it working out for you better to feel like I'm a broken person and there's something wrong with me? Or is it better to think of myself as a human being just like everybody else. And as you said, people are peopling, right? So sometimes I'm, I'm just peopling every day, right? And sometimes that means I make mistakes. Sometimes that means I distort reality and don't recognize that I distort reality. Sometimes it means I do wonderful, beautiful things.